morning. <clears throat> so thankful to be here with you today. Uh, as many of you know, I am by nature an antagonizer. So it's been fun for me, for your MC leaders, to have to deal with these texts in the same way that I have. But I promise you that you, you see them. I didn't bring them up. I didn't make them up. So uh, it's been fun for me last week. And honestly, it's going to continue this week because... Uh, I think there's some more good discussion, and I'm going to throw a few more things in that I didn't throw in last week that will cause trouble again this week, so that will be exciting. Um, MC can be like the Wild Wild West for the next last week and this week, I guess. Today we're in, uh, as Colleen read, we're going to be in First Peter 3. Um, we're not going to do 18, but we're going to, I wanted to connect that verse. I wanted to read that verse again because it's so important, and it connects to, with the rest of the passage. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, and we're going to look at the message of the victorious Christ while really focusing on a little bit on 19 through 22. Would you pray with me before we begin? Father God, Lord, we pray as we come to you today that you would open your word to us, that we would be faithful stewards of your word, that we would be ready to hear, to uh, not only ingest your word, but also to uh, find ways to apply it to our lives, um, to find ways that it relates to other texts. Uh, Lord, we know that not only is the reading and the studying of the Word important for the direct message, but we also know that it's a piece of a puzzle, that as we put it together, we see the clearer and the bigger picture. Lord, help us to see the bigger picture of the Bible, and every time we open your Word, every time we open the text. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to be here today. Lord, it is a blessing to meet as the church. It is a blessing to meet as the corporate body. Lord, we do not, uh, hopefully, we do not take that for granted. Hopefully, we do not take for granted the opportunity we get to fellowship with each other, to love on each other, to help each other, to cherish these relationships, but also, Lord, to worship as one body, one voice, the great God of the universe. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you today. We pray that you take it and use it and change us through it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, uh, I don't think can be taught separate from each other. I think 18 is uh, important as we see the context of 19 through 22. It's important that we understand these verses together to understand the greater context. Last week we spent most of our time talking about the suffering of the victorious Christ. And we learned a few things about the suffering of Christ, not in the scale or not in the, the how, uh, how detrimental it was to the health of Christ, but really what was accomplished behind the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Peter says, for and also, meaning that like you, he's connecting it with four. He's connecting verse 18 with four back to the previous verse. Like you suffer, Peter is saying. Like you suffering, Christ also suffered. Christ's suffering must have been uh, so for many reasons. Uh, but I think the main reason, one of the main reasons is in order that he might, we might know and he might do this, he sympathized with us in every way. There is not anything that we experience that Christ did not experience. There is not anything 
that will be new that you've experienced that is new to you or new to another believer or or that another believer didn't experience throughout history but especially there is nothing new that Christ didn't experience every challenge that you go through every temptation every form of wrath you face he faced and honestly even more Peter's message in 1 Peter 3:18 is clear it's concise it's wonderful like you, Christ also suffered. But where even our own righteousness, our good righteousness, could not bring salvation, his did. Where our good works were never enough, his brought salvation. Remember what Peter said? For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It tells us three important things about the suffering of Christ, and it should shape the way you feel about Christ in every manner of your life. And the first that we talked about last week was he was a once and for all sacrifice, where a quarter of a million Passover lambs could not get the job each year. It could not get the job done. The Passover lamb that spilled his perfect blood once and for all did. He died once and for all. He died once and for all. It's over. The work is accomplished. It's finished. It's done. There is nothing more required of you than to submit to him and give your life as an offering to him. It's done. The work is done. You cannot crucify yourself. You cannot nail yourself up there. Peter goes on to say he died once and for all. Here's why you can't nail yourself up there. The righteous died for the unrighteous. You can nail yourself to a cross. You can have someone nail you to a cross, you can pay penance, but your penance is not enough to save you. It was the work that Christ did, the righteous for the unrighteous. Where I could do nothing good enough to save myself, Christ died to save me. God's perfect son murdered in my place, murdered for a fallen stranger, for an enemy, for one who was far off. He died in our place for crimes he did not commit to take on our wrath to pay a debt that we had no way of paying and still have no way of paying apart from Christ. And what was the result? The veil was torn in two. The way to God was open. Christ died once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, and he introduced us to the Father. There are the most important aspects of the gospel that you cannot let go of. You can't, there is no wavering on. Once and for all, in your place, to give us access to the Father. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And if we hold on to those thoughts in our place, once and for all, to give us access, if we hold on to our th those thoughts as we go through the rest of Chapter 3, it will give us 100% clarity on what Peter is saying when he brings up yet another sort of wrench in the plan. He brings up another sort of problem and he says, in the same manner, baptism now saves you. If we understand that all parts of the Bible are pieces of a larger puzzle, then we look at this verse, we find out the answer, it explains itself, and then we move on. And that's what we're going to do today. Let's look at, um, I have two remaining points from basically um, last week's sermon. 
Really, the first of those is what I started on last week, and then the second is new. But let's look again at the victorious sermon. That was the second point from last week. It's the second point today, even though it's the first point. Hopefully, that's not confusing too much. The victorious sermon, it's found in verses 18b, the second part of 18, through 19. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I know that last week presented some confusion and uh, excitement. Honestly, like, I had multiple people come to me with, like, grins on their face and being like, I've never heard this before. Well, there's a reason for that. It may be I'm wrong, probably not, but it may be because I'm wrong. But the other reason is because it is a very challenging text either way. No matter what, no matter where you, uh, what, what side of the fence you fall on, which I don't think it's sort of that divis- divisive, but whatever side of the fence you fall on, uh, it's a difficult text. And so maybe some things were said last week that you had never heard before. We had some great discussion in both of our MCs on Wednesday night and Sunday night, and uh, I think even the discussion that came out of that was very fruitful uh, after, after we sort of had discussed the, the main to- topic. I'm thankful that I introduced it last week because in those discussions, uh, I was able to garner a, a new perspective or some perspective from uh, your way of thinking, and it's going to help me uh, today in as going o- going over number two to sort of button this up and finalize it in a way that I think everybody will at least be clear about where I stand and maybe even have to maybe even able to sort of garner their own opinion. Um, while I'm not sure, a hundred percent sure about every detail of this text, I am very sure about a few things about this text. And the first is this: Jesus died and was buried. Jesus died and and was buried. I'm 100% sure about that. Peter says, being put to death in the flesh. Now, you might think, of course, Bryce, this is is one of the first things we learn. But people in their depravity still attempt to dispute this fact. Jesus did not die. He performed some cosmic magic trick or... um, he, uh, or, and even really, this is not what we're going to be on, but another thing that's debated is that he did not rise bodily, that he rose in the spirit. And we're not going to get into that, uh, but um, we can talk about that anytime, and I'm sure it'll come up multiple other times. But I know this for a fact, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth as described in the Bible, existed as a real man. And he died in real bodily form. And from a biblical perspective and really a historical perspective, that is irrefutable. Irrefutable. Extra biblical context confirms that. Scientific context confirms that. The facts and truth around the resurrection confirm that. As a matter of fact, up until around 1950, the United States Medical Journal confirmed that based on historical and uh, biblical and scientific evidence that the resurrection or the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, at least the death and burial of Jesus, happened. Now, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this, but I will say this. Peter says that Jesus died and his death was thanatosis. 
His death was a brutal and violent way to die. It was thanatosis. He was fully dead. He was placed in the tomb. This I know from what Peter says. Something else I know. His spirit was made alive. Peter said, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He was fully dead in the tomb, and at least in a figurative sense, if not literally, his spirit ceased to exist for a moment. Now, I think it's probably, I think it's figuratively. I don't think, I know for a fact Jesus was not fully dead ever. His body was dead, but he was alive as God. I know that for a fact. I know that without a doubt. Uh, God cannot die. I know that. But in some sense, his spirit was dead. And I told you last week, and I'm going to remind you, and a lot of this will be a reminder, but I'm going to remind you that I believe from the time that Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He uses the impersonal, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the time he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, I think God had turned the God the Father had turned his face from Jesus in such a way that it killed Jesus, at least figuratively, in the Spirit. He said, Father, Father, or he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what did the Father do? Peter said, and he was made alive in the Spirit. This I know, Jesus died and was buried. His spirit was made alive. This I know. This I believe with as much certainty as I can believe that he went in the time between his death and resurrection, he went to Sheol, which is in many ways, in, in many, it has many forms. One would be the root of the mountain. One would be the depths. But also Sheol has another more literal meaning. Jesus, I believe, in the time between his death and resurrection, went to a place where there were captives in prison and in chains. And here's what I think this might, uh, this might be. And this might open up another can of worms. Uh, I probably should have uh, given your uh, MC leaders some more context and some more warning. But here you go. Before Jesus... I believe that there was a place where God's people died and went. And I believe that there was a place where um, people outside of the faith died and went. They were separate places. They were holding tanks, so to speak. One of those was called Abraham's bosom. And the other was Hades or hell or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, or of those two. Um, and I believe that when G and then there was another place where these spirits were in prison. I believe that when Jesus died, he, uh, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he gained the key, the keys to the kingdom. When he died, he went and gathered up all of those who had died in faith before him and took them to paradise. And then he went in that three-day period, he went and ministered, he went and proclaimed, preached to these spirits who were in prison. 
I believe that these places are contained or were contained in a place called Sheol. And you can call it the depths, you can call it whatever you want, but Sheol itself is not hell. Sheol was the containment area for all dead souls. So Blake and Stephen and Tony and everybody else, you can do a little bit of research on that and buzz me about that. Just make sure your texts are going through if you have problems with me. This would be... These places were very different containments, obviously. The dead in Christ or the dead in faith would not have been with uh, those who died uh, outside of faith. Um, One of the reasons I believe this is because the Bible says that Jesus um, attained the keys to the kingdom. Uh, what, What would that mean? I think that it means that, you know, he had the power to bind and lock or he had the power to unlock and set free, so to speak. Another reason I believe this is because, did you know, and this may be new to you if you haven't uh, read through it or you may have heard somebody preach it before, but did you know that around the death of Jesus that other people were resurrected? So other people were resurrected around Jesus. There is uh, eyewitness testimony from Matthew of saints who had passed away whose tombs were cracked open, likely in the earthquake that happened around Jesus' death, whose tombs were cracked open and walked into Jerusalem. I tend to believe that these saints were in perfected bodies or at least resurrected whole bodies, not like zombies. You know, they were, and, and this was a result of Jesus ransoming, so to speak, those held in Abraham's bosom and taking them with him to paradise. So if that wasn't um, confusing enough before today, there's some more to look through. So um, this is, that's kind of something I'm pretty certain about. I'm not as certain as I am about the other two things. Uh, And you can sort of see as I list these off, there's going to be a little bit of a regression in my certainty. Um, Here's another thing I'm pretty certain about. I'm pretty certain that the spirits in prison were fallen angels. I talked about this last week. Uh, I believe that if you take any other view other than the spirits in prison are fallen angels, then you have to take the view that those in Genesis 6 were uh, from the godly line of Seth and not fallen angels. I believe Peter is saying specifically, I believe Jude confirms it, that these people that Jesus went and ministered to were bound in the time of Noah. They were fallen. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but uh, I believe they were fallen angels. Here's, here's Here's the basis for that belief. And if you missed last week, you missed an entire discussion on this. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go all the way through that again, but I'll give you a little bit. Here's the basis for why I believe that. I think the fact that they were, or the, the idea that they were fallen angels can be verified on a few things. The word for spirit, or the, yeah, the, the, the spirits were fallen angels can be verified on a few things. The word for spirit in the New Testament is always used for angels and not men unless it has a qualifying genitive clause, which is absent in our verse. If it has a qualifying genitive clause, the word for uh, spirit of whatever, spirit of man, whatever, it can be used as um, men. 
But if it is without that, if it's lacking that genitive clause, it is always in the New Testament used for angels. When talking about the people in the next verse, another reason I think that these, were, these spirits were fallen angels, when talking about people in the next verse, uh, Peter uses the word for soul to talk about the people and not spirit. He says there were eight souls who were redeemed. But just a few verses or just a few words earlier, he says these spirits. He uses, it's a form of pneuma. He uses a different word altogether. A third thing that I, the reason I believe that it's a fallen angel is that Jude confirms as much. Using his knowledge and using the book of Enoch, Jude says in Jude 1.6, the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound in everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So Jude says that there are angels in chains. There are spirits in chains. And he goes on to say, here's why they were in chains. He says that they abandoned their proper dwelling, but he goes on to clarify that even more. He says, just as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, where they abandoned their natural sexual tendencies, they abandoned their natural sexual propensities. What he's saying is, is that just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah went after strange flesh, so did these angels who were kept in prison. We know this, that he went to a place to proclaim victory over imprisoned spirits from the time of Noah. If you believe that the angels in Genesis 6 are the godly line of Seth, if you believe that the spirits are, is a, an allusion to Jesus preaching back in the times of Noah, um, that's one thing. But Peter says that Jesus went. This is not, I believe, some hypothetical or some reference to a past event. I believe Peter is saying that the spirit of Christ went in this specific time frame to a peep or to a to a group of beings and preached to them. Peter doesn't say Jesus spoke in the time of Noah, but to the people who were in prison because of what they did in the time of Noah. I'm also certain of what he proclaimed, and it was a victorious sermon. The sermon is not euangelion. In the Greek, which means to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim victory or release or rescue, the sermon was caruso, which means that when Jesus arrived to the spirits in prison, no matter who they were, no matter who you believe they were, when he arrived to the spirits in prison, he was not proclaiming victory for them, he was proclaiming victory over them. It was not a rescue sermon. It was not a you have a chance of redemption like people believe with purgatory or other things. It was not a second chance for those who had died without Christ. It was Jesus saying, I win. I win. So here's how I'd summarize what I believe in case you didn't catch that broken down. In Genesis 6, fallen angels did something so dastardly that they were bound from that time and forever. I think Jude confirms that. I really believe Peter confirms that. And I think the book of Enoch, which is an extra biblical text, confirms that. If you want to look at that, uh, that portion of Enoch, and I have more, uh, it's on the Facebook page, the, the, 
the vintage communication page. I believe it was an attempt to create a mixed race of irredeemable people. I believe it was another attack of Satan and his enemy and his friends to try to create a race that was irredeemable, that even God's son could not save. It was another way for the demons to try to thwart God. I believe that this act was so dastardly, so terrible, that this is why we get a 120-year death sentence. It was right after that act that uh, we see recorded in Genesis 6, 120 years shall be their life. That was, that was, the, uh, that was the time clock on the apocalypse, the first apocalypse. When the flood happened, 120 years after this instance, the flood came. And we know that in that only Noah and his family lived. I believe that when Jesus died, he went together those who had died before his time on earth. And at the same time, he burst into the prison where the demons were being held and let them know that the final ploy against him had lost. They tried to create an irredeemable race in the time of Noah, and it failed. And I imagine, like sitting at the doctor's office and holding out hope that the next name that's called after a couple hours of waiting is going to be yours, they were sitting in those prisons, they were sitting in those chains, and thinking, in just a little while, Satan is going to arrive with the keys to these shackles, the keys to this jail cell, and he's going to rescue us, and he is going to redeem us. And the door opens, and the demons look up, and instead of Satan coming for their rescue, it is Christ himself. And he says, it's over. It's over. Every force that your father Satan had, every force that he had to try to rescue you and to try to kill me has been placed upon me at and around the cross. And it's over. I win. It was not euangelion. It was not you can be redeemed. It was Caruso. It was I am proclaiming to you, you are done. This will be your plight forever. All of the power of hell went against the Son of God, and there was nothing more that Satan can do. And Jesus, holding the keys, he proclaimed as much to those spirits that were in prison. While no one can be 100% sure this is how it happened, in my humble and most accurate opinion, this is what happened. So I believe this was the audience and content of his victorious sermon. Now let me leave you with one more point today. And um, it'll be hopefully not as contentious as the last one. And that is the victorious work. Look at 20 through 22 again. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safety, safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I believe that I explained most of verse 20 to you to the point, uh, to the necessary point, I guess, but I left it 
in here for an important reason. If Peter weren't difficult enough to understand in verses 18 and 19, he now presents us with another problem that seems to fly in the face with what I've taught you and what we know about baptism. Peter says, in the same way, baptism now saves you. So you have to sit there and you have to say, wait a minute, Peter. From what I know, this isn't true. We know that baptism is a symbol, that baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. But you seem to be saying something different. So how should we understand this? The first thing I think you should see under the idea of baptism is that baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body. Baptism, which Peter is implying here, is by immersion and not sprinkling because he says not as a removal of dirt from the body. If you sprinkle somebody with water, if you just put a little bit of water over them, uh, there's no chance of them getting dirt removed from their body. And so it was understood and implied that the practice of baptism that they had been practicing um, had some sort of external effect on their body, a cleansing effect. So Peter is not saying that baptism is a sprinkling. He is saying that baptism, implying that baptism is by immersion, but that it is not meant for your outward self to be cleaned. It is not for the removal of dirt. It is not for a ritual like the priest had to go through every time they entered to the temple. They had to cleanse themselves, wash themselves. It was not like an, un, uh, an unclean person would have had to do in order to be let back into Jewish society to where if they became unclean, and there's all of these sort of rules in the first part of the Bible, they had to wash themselves and cleanse themselves and isolate themselves in order to, become, in order to come back into fellowship. It is not for external cleansing Purposes. The baptism does not have a physical external benefit. A second thing you need to understand is that baptism is an appeal to God. He says not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This verse is basically then saying, Lord, as I enter these waters and they cleanse my body, as I bury my old sin in submission, will you resurrect my life and give me a heart and a mind like yours? Baptism, here it is, here it is, here's the first key. Baptism is a believer, a Christian, asking God humbly to Make this the point of no return to the old life. To make this, it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So that when I leave these baptism, baptismal waters, the salvation I have was found before. And the salvation I have is confirmed now in the life that I live post-baptism. It's an appeal to God. Lord, I am doing this as a representation of what you called me to do, but also to show you that I need you and I want the new life that I, I want the new life that rises out of the water. And I want to get rid of the old life that stays in. We must remember that while baptism does not save you, it is a symbol. But it is also a holy act of submission where we are praying that God would leave our old self in the flood of the baptismal waters and begin a new work in us. Peter says in Acts, repent and be baptized. This is what you need to understand. 
If you consider yourself a Christian and you have not been baptized post-Christianity, you are living in disobedience to the Lord. Repentance and baptism are always connected because repentance is a change of mind that trusts in God to save us and baptism is an appeal to God to do better in the next part of our life. He is saying, turn from your sin and be saved and then ask God to cleanse your soul, to make you more like him, to sanctify you. To me, when Peter puts the words, a clear conscience by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is clear that water baptism doesn't save you. Because even if you don't quite understand or believe the first way I explained it, when you understand that a clear conscience comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter is denying the fact that baptism, the water baptism, could save you right there. Baptism is an appeal to God. Now, here's where baptism saves. Baptism saves in the same manner as it did in the story of Noah. Baptism saves in the same manner in, uh, that it did in the story of Noah. Peter says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, eight souls, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. He says, like in the days of Noah, when Noah built the ark and proclaimed the gospel, and only eight were saved. In that way, baptism now saves you. I think there's a very easy explanation for why Peter would use these words. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I need you to, I need someone to answer out loud, uh, or multiple people to answer out loud. It's not a trick question, but I want your answer, okay? What saved Noah and his family in the time of the flood? What, not who, what? The ark. The ark saved Noah and his family in the time of the flood. I heard a few of you get that, so good job. Who does the ark represent? Christ. The ark, thank you for answering loudly and firmly, everybody. That's good. Christ. I mean, I was talking about the first question, too, not just the time Tony answered loudly. Who does the ark represent? Christ. Okay, what or who saves a person who goes through the baptismal waters? Christ. Friends, you need to hear this. And this is the same way, the same manner that baptism now saves you. It was not the water that saved Noah. As a matter of fact, the water was the judgment. After all, were those who were saved in the time of Noah, in the ark or outside of the ark? They were outside. They were in the water. The ones who died. The water did not save. In the same manner that in the days of Noah, the water did not save. While it, while it did not save, while it does represent the cleansing from Christ, it also represents the judgment of God and death. Remember how, remember the words that I say every time I baptize somebody from Romans 6. Therefore, we were buried with him in the baptism unto death so that we are raised with him to walk in newness of life. If the ark of God does not surround you when you are in the physical baptismal waters, that baptism is condemnation and not life. 
It was the ark that saved Noah and his family. The water does not save. The water kills. The water will kill anything that is not redeemed by the ark. The water will kill anyone who does not appeal to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It wasn't the water that saved you, but the water is the abyss where your sins went to die and live forever. It is the work of Christ and his resurrection that saves you. Let me ask you this. What would happen if when I baptized someone, I held them underwater and refused to let them up? I know that some of you might fear that. What would happen? It's not the submersion in the water that saves you. But it is having gone in and through the water and come out alive where salvation is found. Jesus was the ark for Noah. Jesus is the ark that carries us through the baptismal waters. That leaves our sins behind. That raises us to walk in newness of life with a clear conscience by the resurrection or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the same way that the ark saved Noah and his family from the water, Jesus saves us from the flood of judgment and sin that we brought upon ourselves. So baptism only saves if the baptism you are in is in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. When the doors of the ark were opened, Noah experienced a new, clean, albeit temporary creation. The flood of sins, the doors opening were like rising from the baptismal waters. The water had receded, the doors burst open, and new life was there. Now, just like our life, just like what happened with the world, that life was still perverted. That life was still defiled and so it was not going it's just like when we rise from the baptismal waters or just like when Noah left the ark there was not perfection that there was still defilement that was going to happen and quickly by the way when we leave the baptismal waters we are not going to be perfect our lives are still defiled by sin by the result of Adam's sin and that is why most importantly, we need to make an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just before and during and right immediately after our baptism, baptism, but every day of our lives. Friends, I want you to know baptism is much more than just a symbol. And while we uh, profess, while we can be saved, while baptism does not save you, you cannot be really a believer without baptism. I hope that doesn't confuse everything. Baptism does not save you. The obedient believer will understand the necessity of the spiritual act of submission to God and be baptized. The last verse doesn't need much in the way of restatement because we've done it and we'll do it over and over again. But um, 
and it also can be an entire sermon. But look at verse 22, and this is how we'll close. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Friends, for a moment, for a brief vapor in the scheme of eternity, God the Son restrained his Godhead in many ways in order that he might come to this earth to live like us, to experience what we experience, and to die for us. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he took it back. He took it back. He restrained it. He never lost it. He just held it back. So he took it back. And he has gone into heaven. And he's at the right hand of God. The right hand of God means, uh, or the right hand of the king would have meant that he had every rule, every power, every authority, every say that the king has. And we know this all in a real way because we know that I and the Father are one, that God and Jesus are the same. And he's in heaven right now, and he's at the right hand of God where he has placed angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. You know what this means? In, in ancient times, when a king took over, another kingdom. He would make the leaders of that kingdom kneel before him and he would put his foot on the back of their neck as a sign that they were done. It was the ultimate sign of embarrassment for the other king. It was the ultimate sign of submission. It was the ultimate sign of defeat, but it was the ultimate sign of victory for the king who'd won. And he put his foot on the neck of those spirits in prison. And he put his foot on the neck of Satan and the demons. And he put his foot on the neck of any other power or principality that had tried to win. The force of all of the force of darkness and, the, and hell rested on God at the cross. And it's still lost. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And can I tell you, friends, you must be ready because he will not stay there permanently. He will return. And I can promise you something, and I don't mean this in a John Hagee sort of way. We are in the last days. From the time that Jesus died on the cross to the time that he was resurrected to now has been the last days. We are in the end times. And just like a thief in the night, just like a breath, just like a whisper, he will come at any moment. And we need to be ready. We need to be ready. We need to make sure that our hearts and our minds and our lives are redeemed. We need to make sure that we are gospel proclaimers. That I would say, I would say this, and I don't mean this in a hyperbolic way, that the majority of our energy goes into either learning about, surrendering to, and following God, and then proclaiming his name or talking about it, at least amongst other Christians. I believe that the majority of our physical energy should go into that on a regular basis.
But I will say for myself, and I will say probably for you, that that is not the case. I will say that's not probably the case. He is coming. He is waiting for time to be fulfilled. He will return, and we must be ready. He's done all the work, though. He died for us once and for all, once for sin. He did it in our place. He gave us access to God. He told the enemies that they were done, that they were defeated. I mean, we don't really have to face them. I know that there are enemies that we will have to face in life, whether people or whether spiritual enemies, and sometimes both, but we don't have to face them in the same way that we would face them without Christ. While the Christian life, by no stretch of the imagination, is easy, he has made all of the things to become a Christian and to follow him easy. Trust him. Believe in him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and your house. You must do these things. And then, when you believe, your life will be transformed in a way that is quantifiable. Pray with me. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your son who died for us, who lives for us, who reigns over us. We thank you that he holds the keys to the kingdom. He holds the keys over life and death, and he is trustworthy. He's worthy of those things. And so we trust him, we give our life to him, and we pray that we honor him uh, through the resurrection of Jesus by having a clear conscience. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you this day. We pray that you ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.